Well, good morning. It is uh, good to be with you, and thank you once again uh, for a week of vacation. I appreciate your prayers and uh, your inquiries about that. I want to welcome those of you who are guests with us today. Uh, We are delighted that you've chosen to spend this hour uh, with us, and we uh, trust that uh, you uh, will be ministered to by God's Holy Spirit. And if there's something that we can do for you, please don't hesitate uh, to let one of us uh, know. We are in the last third of the Gospel of Mark uh, this morning, and it narrates only seven days in the life of Jesus. It Almost all takes place either at the temple or very close to the temple in its vicinity. And the reason such a disproportionate amount of the gospel is given to us is that uh, these events of the last seven days tell us much about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. If you would, let's stand in recognition that we're reading God's word and not merely the writings of Mark. And pray with me. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, give us all that we need in order to receive the grace of your word today. Help us, Lord, and be pleased O gracious God, to make this alive to us and help us, Lord, to combine what we hear with faith today, that it, in fact, might be fruitful in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Mark 11, beginning with uh, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not written, excuse me, it is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. 
if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you and your trespasses. May God add his blessing to his word. Please return to your seats. So let me ask you to imagine something, to engage in a thought experiment. What is the most important building in our nation? What's the most historically significant building? The place where uh, the famous and the rich come, either to work or to visit. The place that stands at the very center of our national life. Now that you have that place in your mind's eye, imagine that you know it's about to be destroyed and that you are persuaded is the judgment of God that that's going to take place. Just how would you communicate that to people? Well, you might say, Pastor, that's an awful lot of supposing. It would never occur to me even to think about uh, such a thing as this, and, and, and you'd be right. It is a lot of supposition. But unless we can imagine ourselves in a situation that somewhat parallels what Jesus is experiencing, then we're going to misunderstand everything that takes place uh, here. What God is saying to us and what he intends to do, is, what he intends for us to do as a result. Now, the most common understanding, and if you've ever heard anybody teach or preach about this passage, they have told you something like this, that Jesus is in the temple calling out inappropriate commercial activity, that uh, the sale of animals uh, has defiled the temple and it keeps people from prayer, um, that the money changers are gouging people, uh, they are uh, making an excessive profit in what they're doing. And this makes Jesus a mere reformer of Judaism. But he's up to something else, something far more radical than that. So what is going on here? Well, Jesus comes to the temple three times in the last week of his life. The first time he enters the city as an ancient king would. And the crowds uh, just acclaim him as the greater son of King uh, David. And they take up the words of one of the Psalms, Hosanna, which means salvation, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're very confident that he's come to save them and destroy the Gentiles. And uh, anticlimactically, instead, what he does is he looks around and he leaves and nothing happens that day. The next day, as uh, he's on the way to the temple, he curses a fig tree. And then on the way out, the disciples remember the curse. In fact, this is the first thing we're told they remember in the gospel. <laughs> um, they're, they're starting to tune in to what's going on here a little bit. And, uh, and they see that the fig tree uh, has withered. Just what's going on? Has Jesus gone berserk? Uh, uh, Bertram Russell, who is... Uh, the philosopher and mathematician and no fan of Christianity accuses Jesus of vindictive fury. Why is Jesus venting his anger? Is he just having a bad day? And people a lot more sympathetic to Jesus actually 
are embarrassed by this uh, passage and even troubled by his actions. Why? Well, there's two problems here. One is that Jesus uses his power to destroy. Since he's hungry, why doesn't he use his power to make some figs? Why destroy the tree? And he seems to be irrational. Mark adds that it wasn't the season uh, for figs. Doesn't Jesus know that? You know, you wouldn't go out to Western Maryland looking for apples in March or June. They are not ripe till autumn. And maybe even you feel a little sympathy for the fig tree. You know, he's, what has this fig tree ever done to Jesus that he should curse it? But Mark's notation here that it wasn't the season for figs is meant uh, to prod you into thinking of puzzling over what's going on here. Once again, Mark is using this sandwich technique to narrate the life of Jesus. All these things happen, and he could have told them in a different way, but he intentionally sandwiches these things uh, for us. He wants us to see the sandwich because apart from the sandwich, we would understand these events one way and we're to see them in a completely different uh, way. There's more in the whole sandwich than appears in either of the parts. So the two slices of bread are the fig tree and the filling, the meat of the sandwich is what Jesus does in the temple. And these actions are connected to each other. They explain uh, each other. And we're at a disadvantage as we read this passage. It's, we don't have temples, right? We don't live in the first century. We're not first century Jews. And so it's just really hard for us to imagine the importance of the temple in that day and to those people. So the temple's big. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient uh, world. It was lavishly expanded by King Herod. And it occupies now 40 acres of land. So if you're not a farmer, that's 1.7 million square feet. It's huge. And it was central to Israel's religious, political, and economic life. Economically, it dominated the skyline of Jerusalem. It served as the city's central bank. It was the Capitol building and Wall Street. Most people in the city uh, had their employment, either directly or indirectly, uh, there because of the temple. Politically, it was the power base of the priestly hierarchy who ruled Judah under the Romans. And religiously, it was God's house. It was the place where he lived. And at the very center of it was the Holy of Holies, where God's radioactive holiness admitted. And it both warded off the evil around uh, uh, the people of God, and it was the place where they themselves could be purified. It's where heaven and earth meet. It was the absolute point of reference for life for a Jew. It's like the North Star for navigation, or or a compass for all of life for them, and the guarantee of a connection with God. It's where forgiveness of sin took place, and where God heard prayer. There's just nothing 
Nothing like it. We, we don't have anything like this in our, in our nation or in the world. It's, it's uh, Jesus acting here to send a message about the temple. And he dramatizes this message with the kind of symbolic actions that we see prophets in the Old Testament do. Uh, Hosea marries a prostitute. He marries an unfaithful wife to represent God's relationship uh, to his unfaithful uh, people. Jeremiah is told by a plot of land as he uh, proclaims that the nation is going to be driven off uh, the land. Ezekiel makes a model of Jerusalem and is told to lay on his side by it for a year to indicate the nature and length, something of the length of uh, their time in exile. Just what is being said in these symbolic acts, both with the fig tree and the temple? Well, the leaders get the message. Jesus is attacking the temple. He's announcing its destruction. And he isn't trying to reform it. And the chief priests and the other leaders understand the message. That's why they want to kill him. So let's just unpack this a little bit. It's so important to unpack it to see its significance for us. So these are Jesus' deeds. This is what Jesus does. He comes to the temple as its Lord, and he's inspecting it to see whether, in fact, it is living out God's intention for it. And the next day, uh, he inspects a fig tree. The second visit, the text we read, and it's full of leaves. It doesn't have any fruit. And so I got to say a word to you gardeners who are just puzzled here about this. So in Palestine, fig trees yield figs twice. There's this little early fig uh, that would be immature uh, because this is Passover. We know exactly when this took place. And then the main harvest comes in August. And I tell you that because Jesus is not acting irrationally. He's expecting to find some fruit, some immature fruit. It's not really edible fruit. But what he sees instead is a tree that's deceptive. It's green in its foliage. It's full of life and promise. But when Jesus inspects it, there's no fruit at all. It's a tree with the signs of fruit, but it's fruitless. And so he says, may no one ever eat from you again. And then Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out some who are buying and selling animals for sacrifice. And he overturns the tables where Jews have come from all over the Roman Empire and have all kinds of different money in their pockets, exchange it so that they can pay the temple tax. That funded the daily offering for sin in the temple. And he interferes with the transportation of the very things that are necessary for the temple sacrifices uh, to function. Jesus is attacking the sacrificial system. Just briefly, just symbolically, the temple quickly returns uh, to its normal function. If he had really disrupted things, the temple police would have been out in force and arrested him. That's not what happened. This is a prophetic, symbolic act. On the way out of the city, the disciples see for the very first time, Mark tells us, they see 
that the fig tree uh, has died from the roots up. In other words, the fig tree is really dead. No gardener with watering is going to restore this fig tree. It's gone. And Jesus is passing judgment on the temple, just as he did with the fig tree. His words will bring about its destruction. And he says this plainly in chapter 13 in his last visit as the disciples admire this amazing edifice. The condemnation of the fig tree and the temple are irreversible. The temple, which is the very root of Israel's worship, is about to be destroyed, never to return. The temple is like the fig tree. It's deceptive. Despite all its religious activity, it doesn't yield the fruit that the Lord God expects in the character and conduct of his people. The curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment on the temple. God's purposes for the temple are not being realized. And then Jesus speaks, and Mark tells us that when he, he only teaches by quoting two verses, just parts of two verses, one uh, from the prophet Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. The quote, these short quotes, are meant to be understood within their context. And this is one of the reasons this passage has been so misunderstood. So Isaiah 56, my house shall be a house of prayer, is about the day when the Gentiles can approach God, who are barred and excluded. They will minister to the Lord as if they were priests. This reaches back to God's original intention for the temple. When it was dedicated, Solomon prayed that God would hear and answer the prayers of those from other nations who prayed to God in that temple. And the temple in Jesus' day was a monument to the exclusion of the Gentiles. The, we, we call that outer area the court of the Gentiles, but that's a modern designation. Uh, it it uh, was the place that said to Gentiles, you can come no closer. Paul is uh, referring to the wall uh, when he says the wall of hostility. It was like a stone structure that's covered in Constantina wire. It was meant to keep out it had a huge sign that said, if you as a Gentile walk through here, you would be put to death. And Jesus is denouncing this national and religious exclusion. Jesus is saying Israel was not a light to the nations as God intended. It didn't desire uh, to bless the nations as was God's call on them uh, from the very first as he summoned Abraham uh, to follow him. Israel wants God to curse the nations and his judgment to fall on them. And Jesus is denouncing this because instead of welcoming the nations, it's being used to exclude them. And the second text has been totally misunderstood. It's from Jeremiah 7, but it has become a den of robbers. The house that was supposed to be a house of prayer has become a den of robbers. Now, this won't take a lot of reflection, but robbers don't go to their dens to steal from others. 
they commit their crimes elsewhere and they go to their den because they've escaped the long arm of the law and they feel safe. They, they count uh, what they've stolen. Uh, they relax. That's what a den of robbers is. And when you, when you read that in Jeremiah 7, it becomes completely clear. Jeremiah parrots back uh, the words of Israel in response to his announcement that God is going to send the nation into exile. They say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And he says, these are deceptive words. They're saying we're safe because God's temple and God himself is here in this city. Nothing can happen uh, bad here. And he announces to them, that the nation's going into exile, the temple will be destroyed because of the wickedness of the people who come there to worship. Jeremiah is saying the temple is giving uh, people a false sense of security, as if God's presence there means that people can do evil and be okay with God. And that's what Jesus is saying as well, that the temple under the leadership of the priests has made people who are practicing evil feel like they're on good terms with God. They don't need to repent. They're beyond his reach and safe from judgment. You know, if, if you need a parallel, it's kind of like the nation's leaders about our national debt. They, they just like think, well, you know, the treasury can print money and there's people all over the world who want to buy government bonds and so we're completely safe from any economic effects of having such a massive, exponentially growing uh, national debt. So this point's really simple. The religion of the temple is barren because it's completely out of sync with God's purposes. Instead of being a place where the nations can enjoy Israel's light, where they can pray to the one true God, Israel is using the temple to keep the nations away. Instead of a place where evil is exposed and repented of and are forgiven and inwardly demonstrate uh, that they are offering themselves with humility in the sacrifices. It's merely a place where people do rituals. Jesus is creating a crisis. You know, for a Jew to repudiate the temple was to create a crisis about God's presence in the world. That's hard for us because we don't think of God being in a place like that. But that's what Jesus is saying to them. And so when they ask about all of this, he says to them, have faith in God. Jesus is challenging the idea that to abandon faith in the temple is to abandon God. Effective prayer will have nothing further to do with the temple or its offerings. A new day is dawning, and Jesus... When he dies on the cross, he has opened up access, not just uh, for Israel, but for all the peoples of the nation who will honor uh, God. The curtain in the temple in the innermost place is torn in two uh, to symbolically uh, teach this. God has created a new house of prayer. 
Jesus, through uh, his death, creates a new temple, not made with human hands, uh, 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 in which all the barriers and limitations are torn down. That house of prayer is us. It's not this building. It's us. This is what Peter's getting at in his letter when he talks about living stones being built into a temple and calls us uh, to bring sacrifices and offerings. Jesus is calling us, his disciples, to have faith in God. We are to be Christ's praying people who see the power of God released to do the impossible. Let me flesh that out for you. There are three governing principles Jesus mentions here. Faith in God that's expressed in prayer, in depending, depend, depending prayer on God. Uh, the second principle is overcoming obstacles in prayer. And the third is a prayer that's characterized by forgiveness, that reflects God's forgiving uh, character. Faith is expressed in prayer. Let me, let me unpack that just a little bit. True prayer makes requests of God in faith. Faith believes, and so it asks. And asking is rooted in the conviction that God wants to accomplish on earth his will in heaven. Now, such praying is not a way to get God to change his mind and do something he doesn't intend to do. It's a lot more uh, like uh, a boat approaching uh, uh, the shore. And the boatman reaches out with his pole and, and pulls. He doesn't pull the shore to the boat. He pulls the boat to the shore, right? The shore doesn't move. He and the boat uh, move. In prayer, we draw near to God. We get in tune uh, with his purposes. When Jesus speaks about prayer overcoming the insurmountable, illustrated by his curse of the fig tree and the destruction of the temple, what he's saying is, when he says, you can cast mountains into the sea with your prayer, well, that's impossible to cast a mountain in the sea. It's like getting the camel to go through the eye of the needle. This is just a way of saying this is utterly impossible. And what Jesus is saying in prayer, the power of God that can do what we cannot do is released. And so it means we should pray big things. We should pray for kingdom things. We should uh, pray that lives would be changed, for cities to be moved by the gospel. We should not allow our cynicism and our discouragement and our unbelief to keep us for praying for the gospel, uh, to make new gains everywhere in the world. And the third quality of this prayer, its guiding principle, is a concern for relational healing, for reconciliation between uh, people. And of course, it includes a confession of our sin uh, to God, a readiness on our part to let go of all resentments, to release uh, from the demands of God's justice all the wrongs that we've experienced uh, from people, uh, to offer to even those we deem as enemies the gift of forgiveness 
that there might be reconciliation. To forgive is not to reconcile, but to forgive is a gift given to an enemy in the hopes that they will repent and that a relationship might be restored. This call to prayer that Jesus utters in in verse 24, this is what they say in the South is y'alls. These are plural yous. Every one of these is plural. Jesus is not talking about the prayers you offer in your prayer closet at home when you're alone. No, he's talking about corporate prayer among his people. He has in mind that we together would ask God to do things that are utterly impossible so that that blessing that God intends for his people to be would go to the nations. It's to pray for breakthroughs. In 2018, I traveled to India with my good friend Jim Whittle. Jim's another pastor who uh, now serves in a ministry. He's the director to India of a ministry that trains pastors. And most of these pastors are in little rural villages. And uh, these pastors are poor. They're incredibly poor. You can't imagine how poor they are. And they're bivocational. They work a job as well as be a pastor. And they have very limited access to education. And so I traveled with Jim to do one of the many modules that they do to help these pastors learn how to become better uh, preachers, something I'm still working on learning how to be. And um, uh, the thing that... uh, has happened in the years since I went with Jim is instead of just having four national partners and access to maybe five or 10,000 churches, they have more than doubled the number of national partners they're working with. And they've more than tripled the number of staff that are engaged. And actually COVID allowed them uh, to accelerate what they were doing because they couldn't travel to India. And they began to do more and more of this Uh, because the internet's widely available in India. And they're seeing amazing things happen in India among the poorest and lowest class people in India. It's extraordinary. And you know that what's happened is happened because Jim goes around and he not just asks his supporters to pray and to pray collectively, But through the pandemic in the church that he worships in, he asked the elders, he said, you know, can I teach a seminar on prayer? And can I help organize prayer groups in the church? And he said, there's there's just no reason why in the day of Zoom and conference calling that we have to ask people to come to the building to pray. People can pray, men can pray before they go to work. Women who have children can pray together after the kids are in bed, the husband's home, and can finish that. There's no reason. This is Jim talking. You you should hear Jim. (laughs) I I can't channel him quite effectively, but he doesn't think there's a reason any adult Christian can't be in prayer. And he would be the first to tell you what's happened in the expansion of the, the ministry in India, which is extraordinary by any standards, has happened because of the corporate prayer of God's people. Now, I want to commend you as church. You are church that prays. Uh, It's an important aspect of the life of the church 
Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And you uh, pray for the blessings of the gospel to come to nations around the globe every Sunday. You're not relying on religious activity for your acceptance with Christ to think God has to hear you uh, because you do this, that, or the other thing. And I can say that every month and sometimes every week, there are answers to prayer that we celebrate on Sunday nights. But there's still room for growth here. Our prayers are not nearly as bold as they could be. We, we, well, I want to challenge you. You know, Jim's right. We corporately don't pray together as we ought. The truth is, is that in most churches, there are no prayer meetings at all anymore. And we wonder why the church has so little power. Well, power is connected to prayer and fruitfulness is connected to the power that's released in prayer. It's really not complicated. And the other nations, our brothers and sisters, they understand this. They don't have any resources. They don't have all these things that we rely on. We we think that God has to show up because we're here. But he doesn't have to do that. You know what would be a huge prayer is for us as a congregation to pray earnestly, believingly, that God would take us collectively and individually to bless our neighbors. Just to bless the people that are in our immediate vicinity, wherever you live, wherever you, wherever you work. That each of us would have a few people who we could bless and in time share the gospel. That we would actually celebrate Adults coming to faith as a church. That there be a couple that that would happen with in 2023. That's a big prayer. For some of you, it means believing that God could do the impossible with your personality. For some of you, it may mean God doing the impossible with your schedule. For some of you, it may be God would do the impossible with your attitude for people who don't agree with you about all sorts of things. I want to close with an illustration from much closer to us than India. It comes from a small town in Oregon named Jefferson. And at the time that these events took place, Jefferson was 1,500 people. Now, there was a pastor, a Baptist pastor, in this little town. He had a church of about 200, and he had been ministering in that church for, well, 10 years. And God revealed to him that his motives in ministry were corrupt, that he was doing ministry because he wanted a reputation. And so he came to his people and humbly acknowledged his sin. And then he called them to pray together. And what they did is they, you know, this is a rural part of Oregon, they, I think, he dropped a pin and a map right where, they're, where they gathered for worship and drew a radius of 20 miles. And they said, this is ours to be responsible for. And they prayed and they loved their neighbors.
four or five years ago, after he confessed, went by, and there wasn't anybody in that radius who didn't know this church existed. And they would say, those who did not go, the people there will love you. They'll tell you that they love you, and they will show you that they love you. That Easter Sunday, five years later, in a town of 1,500, a church of 200, there were 1,700 people who came to Easter Sunday morning and heard the gospel preached. It can happen not just far away in India, but it can happen here if we will give ourselves to prayer together in prayer and find ways to have prayer. You don't have to have an elder to lead a meeting in prayer. You can organize prayer. If you don't know how to organize prayer, ask me, ask Tom, ask Cliff. We'll help you. If you want to see the power of God unleashed, you need to ask. Jesus expects his people to be that house of prayer for all nations. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, grant, grant that we might hear with faith and put our faith into action. For we ask in Christ's name, for the sake of the nations and for his glory. Amen.